everyone, and welcome to the Psych Effect Podcast. This is episode four. If you're paying attention, I'm Dimitri Bick, uh, your host. I am a psychiatrist. Uh, this week, I'm with Alex Espinoza. Hi, Alex. Hello, everybody. Uh, Alex is a biomedical engineer, which I think is super interesting. Uh, biomedical engineers, as I understand it, and Alex, you're probably going to correct me, um, but they are involved in the uh, planning, design, and execution of creating medical devices and equipment. Am I right about that? Yep, that's right. All right. Well, I got that right. Okay. Yep. <laughs> so, uh, tell tell us more. Tell me more, and everybody more specifically about what is involved in that because to me um you know i'm a psychiatrist i don't really use medical equipment but um in my training i've seen medical equipment and now that telehealth is out there's more of a a push towards medical equipment that can specifically help in telehealth um so tell people what specifically what is involved in creating going from um the planning stages and the idea stage all the way through kind of development and the product of a, of a biomedical equipment process. Sure. I mean, first of all, like medical devices covers lots of things from like disposable, like latex gloves to syringes to implants, catheters, surgical robots, scalpels, um, you know, there's this whole range of things and it's usually something that's um uh, regulated by either the fda or iso in europe so there's um some pretty strict design guidelines and they're not very much uncommon like they're not unlike aerospace or anything in that they just want you to basically follow in an organized design process so you have to basically um specify what it is that the device should do. Then you design a device and then you carry out a series of tests to prove that it in fact does what it should do. And just very generally speaking, the FDA expects you to prove that the device is safe and effective. It's so very much like uh, sorry. So very much like a, a drug in that sense. Yeah, exactly. Now I, I know nothing about pharmaceuticals, but I've always heard that the regulatory path for pharmaceuticals is far more rigorous than for medical devices. Really? So that's, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. You would think it would be the other way around. Don't you think? Because like, for instance, implants go inside your body. Yeah. Now, so do drugs, but you would think that something that would be inside your body forever, forever would have stricter regulations. Yeah. But that's not true. It's actually interesting because, um, I mean, a lot of uh, devices that have been used before these regulations were in place have kind of been grandfathered in. So, you know, there's a pretty good understanding of how uh, a titanium reacts inside the body, for example, or stainless steel or various other materials and even drugs. And, and so those types of things, uh, you know, are well understood and the FDA doesn't really um, care about so much. I mean, that being said, if you were to come out with a new device that is made of a old material, like a titanium, you know, bone screw or something, you would still have to show that your device is safe and effective. It's not going to 
fracture inside the body after six weeks and, you know, poke out of somebody's arm or not do its job, uh, you know, fixing the screws, et cetera. So you still have to, you know, test that and, um, again, show that it's safe and effective. And in the process of doing so, uh, the FDA, ISO, you know, either any re regulatory body expects you to have um, your own design control system. So most of the policing that they do is making sure that you have your own processes to make sure that things go through your design cycle in an orderly fashion. But it is easier to, you know, if you're, if you're producing a medical device that has already been approved by the FDA, it's easier to get it through the FDA the next time, right? Because oh, there's, there's some kind of provision. I think John Oliver did a whole thing on this. Did you see that thing that he did on medical devices? Uh, no, but I think what you're talking about is a 510K, which is a special type of, um, I don't know if it's, I don't know where the name comes from. It's probably the name of a form or something, but basically it's a regulatory approval that's based on a predicate device. That's so right. if you can prove that your device is substantially equivalent. That's exactly what it was, yeah. Yeah, that's that's a very important phrase. Yeah. Uh, to another device which is approved, then your your path to being approved is, is much easier. And that's a big factor when uh, companies are deciding, you know, what to fund and what not to fund. You know, if you have a, you know, great idea for a medical device product, but it's so different that there's nothing like it. And you're going to have to take like a PMA regulatory path and do clinical trials and this and that, you know, your device might take $30 million in 10 years to get to market. If I have an idea that's not as novel as yours and can take a 510k path, it might only take $10 million in five years to get to market. So the cost of developing your device versus mine is, you know, substantially different. So as much as possible for cost reasons, medical device manufacturers try to take the 510k path to approval. Now, and it, that's that's cost to the company to produce the device. Now, do they necessarily make that, do they make those savings available to the end consumer, to the patient, to the hospital, or do they keep, so if they were to take the PMA route, which is more expensive versus the 510k route, which is less expensive, would they price it the same way and make, you know, that extra money on the 510k route or would they lower the price because they get a lower cost of development? Do you uh, have any knowledge into that? Any insight into that? Interesting. I've always thought of it as they increase the price for the PMA products. I've never thought of it like you, you reduce the price for the 510k product. Um, no, but sadly, I, I think the, the pricing is down to um, insurance reimbursements and what you can bill for it. So that's another thing that you factor in when you're deciding to develop a medical device or not. You know, how much can I get for this? If there's already uh, insurance reimbursement code for a similar procedure that yours would fall into that category for, let's say, uh, you know, $2,000 a procedure, then you could reasonably charge $2,000, even if it costs you $200 to produce a device. Um, so the, the, 
the pricing is not a hundred percent correlated to the 510k or the PMA route. And and you know, the technical development costs. Obviously, it would cost a lot more to develop a surgical robot than it would a scalpel, for example. But so you kind of factor how much is it going to cost to develop it in terms of like technical development, regulatory clearance, etc. And then how much money can I make for the next five, 10 years based on the, uh, the cost of the device that I'm making versus the uh, reimbursement code for it. Right. And if there's no reimbursement code for it, you can um, hire people to negotiate with insurance companies and publish papers and, and basically fight your way into the insurance companies agreeing that there should be a new code for your new device and your new procedure. But that has a huge cost associated with it also. So you're almost at the mercy of there already being an, a code you know, with the insurance companies before you can develop something. It depends on what it is. If it's an elective procedure anyway, and there's no codes for it, it's a little bit more of a, a free market. But if you're, um, I don't know, let's say you're in orthopedics and you're, you have a product where you can, you know, fix a, a, a broken bone and your competitor has a code that the doctor can bill for. So you're sending this guy's arm you can either use product A and bill for it or product B and ask the patient to pay out of pocket. You're probably going to choose product A most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the kind of sad part about how health decisions are made. Well, yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that's the sad part. And the, and the, the, the frustrating part is that as things come out, and this is not just devices, but pharmaceuticals too, is that the prices continue to go up uh, as development costs go up, as regulations go up, and reimbursement for these things either stay steady or they go down, at least from the consumer end of it. Um, it seems that way. And from the yeah. doctor end of it, either things start to get, they immediately get rejected or they re request ridiculous amounts of uh, 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 prior authorizations and, and uh, requests for, well, at least for pharmaceutical things, generic alternatives and things like that. I don't know how devices are, because again, I don't use them, whether they, ha they don't have generic alternatives for devices, um, I'm assuming. But I would assume that if they had a version of the same device that's less expensive to use, they mm -hmm. would want you to use that. And I don't know if that's true. Do they have those kinds of things? I don't think so. I mean, we're kind of getting into the more of uh, the marketing and sales side of medical devices. Um, but I think for the most part, there are you know competitive devices. They're all a little bit different because they're all protected by their own IP. So you uh -huh. couldn't make exactly my version of the device. I don't know how that works in the pharmaceutical world, but um, no, they tend to I th not be generics, but more like in, in some cases, two, three, or, or half a dozen competitors for now, similar when you, products. 
Now, when you say your device, is it something that you came up with as the engineer or is it somebody in the company that says, I have this idea, and then they come get you and say, yeah, I have this idea, you build this for me? Um, no, I mean, I'm an engineer. Actually, I work as a contractor, uh, but even as an employee, you're typically just paid to uh, it's just provide your service, do your work, and... Uh, every place that I've worked, you sign an invention assignment agreement. So you're you're a hired gun. You get paid to do your work, and it's owned by the company that owns the IP who is fronting the $20, 30000000 million to develop it. So, um, you know, it's not like I'm investing my own money to develop this $30 million product. So, you know, I get paid to show up, um, design things on behalf of the client to the best of my ability, and get ip for them um like and i even have a lot of patents um where i'm named as an inventor which is pretty cool but i've of course i've assigned all the rights to the owner of the patent who is the parent company who paid me to think of the cool things for them <laughs> right so you don't you don't actually get any um you don't actually like get any uh royalties uh, yeah royalties for every time that thing is sold Right. That would only be the owner of the patent if they decide to license it to another company or something. That's a shame. It, but I, <laughs> I get the street cred. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Have you ever thought about kind of going out on your own and inventing these things by yourself? Um, not really. Honestly, I love the work more than the, um, or specifically the design work more than the entire process of uh you know the marketing and uh raising capital and i mean there's just a lot of parts to it you know right. uh i'm the person who you'd, you'd come to with a you know i i need something that does this this and that and then i go oh that's that's crazy and I kind of throw my hands up and <laughs> come back and like okay well what if we tried this and you know after a couple of brainstorming sessions and scribbling on dry erase boards you know, we start coming up with prototypes and the next thing you know, like a physical product starts to materialize. That's what I do and what I love. Okay. And what, what is the coolest thing that you think that you've patented? Um, <sighs> patent wise. Um, or invented, if that's a better word. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I... I get really uh, impressed with really small, novel, clever approaches to doing like anything. Uh, so for me, I don't know. I can't think of any one specific thing. And also, usually the the especially like the patents that I'm involved in. By the time it gets to the patent, it's been a collaboration of a couple of people. Like you're sitting around brainstorming and somebody says something like, like ridiculously stupid, but that leads to somebody else saying something slightly less stupid. And before you know it, you've got <laughs> an amazing idea, but it takes a lot of courage and trust from everyone, right. you know, to be like, ah, I know this sounds stupid, but what if I can't really take credit for personally saying, oh, I invented this or I came up with that, especially as, as it relates to 
uh, you know, my daily work. Uh, I don't know. I've had my clever moments. They're very, uh, come on, Alex, you got to take credit for something specific. <laughs> um, you know, I really enjoy when I can design something like come up with an idea, crank out with the design, build it. And it works the first or second time. That is like the biggest high because <laughs> it it takes years to get to this and luck. Right. Have you had any um, of those? Um, recently, I came up with a tool to measure the thickness of some very small um, features like on a stent. And... Mm -hmm. It was like a couple of hours just kind of like cranking out designs on the computer, 3D print some parts, assemble it. It goes together the first time. Everything fits. It works. That was like I was showing it off to everybody in the office, <laughs> you know, nice. like with my hand up asking for a high five. So I nice. felt pretty good about that. Does your company develop anything that is used that could be used in telehealth? Because telehealth is now pretty much uh, – like it's exploding now because of this pandemic. I don't think it's going to stop. Um, it was always the future. It's now basically accelerated. Uh, the biggest thing now needs to be some way for uh, doctors, not doctors like me, but primary care doctors, cardiologists to be able to touch people uh, through a screen, uh, mm. getting KGs, stethoscope kind of, touching, hear heartbeats, uh, do palpations, stomach, stuff like that. Do you guys have anything like that? Any ideas I've, in that way? I've never quite worked on anything like that, but I have worked on a surgical robot and I've worked on a telepresence robot, not medical, just for a uh, consumer product company. Um, so kind of like on either side of what you're talking about, but nothing right in the middle. But um, no, I don't think there's anything. I, I mean, I definitely haven't worked on anything that's like what you're describing. Do you know if that exists? Because I'm not sure that that does, but it would be something that would be necessary. Right? A consumer would have to buy it and they would have to link to the computer and the software that would be able to be compatible with any software, no matter what mm -hmm. telehealth software it would be, you know, something that would be small enough, like maybe that they could wear on their wrist and it would need to take blood pressure, heart rate, right. Respirations, pulse ox, uh, for people that don't know pulse ox is the, uh, uh, blood oxygenation level. Um, I said breathing rate, right. Mm -hmm. Um, Basically, anything that you would get on a monitor that you see in all those movies uh, right. when pa patients are in the hospital and they have that big fat monitor next to them. Basically, all of those things in a device that would basically be on their wrist. And then well, it would mean, be Apple able to. Watch, you know, it does a lot of. Well, it doesn't do pulse ox yet. No, I uh, know, uh, but it does heart rate, it doesn't do blood pressure. But, but uh, the new Series 5 does like an EKG. Yeah, but is it accurate though? I mentioned it to my primary care physician just, you know, in conversation. And I mean, 
she was amazed because she remembers like when she was in medical school, like EKG machines were these giant things. And right. I, I got the impression that it was decently accurate. I mean, the tricky part is that now is your consumer device that you bought at the Apple store, a medical device. Wow. It's okay. To, you know, quack like a medical device. Right. But see what I'm saying is when I say it's a medical device, so there's, um, and if I'm remembering my medical training, there are six leads on a on an EKG. If I'm remembering it correctly, mm -hmm. the the Apple the Apple device would would probably have the number two lead, which is the most common thing that you think about when you see an EKG. It's that it's that uh, doop 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 where yeah. you get the the P wave and the QRS, and then you get the T wave coming back on the end of it. That is the most common thing that people think when they see a, an EKG. That's the number two lead um, of, of all of the leads. But cardiologists and uh, doctors, when they read an EKG, they read all of them. Mm -hmm. And the Apple Watch can't do all that. Right. So I'm talking about a device that can give you all of those. Now, I don't think a, a wrist device can do that because those leads are the the electrical the electrical impulses from the from the the leads that provide those electrical impulses are from all different parts of the body. You wouldn't mm -hmm. be able to get them from the wrist. But if you combined a wrist device with a smaller device that you could set on your chest, for instance, you might be able to get most of them. And connect them via Wi-Fi or Bluetooth or something to the computer. So now you're talking about a wrist device and a small chest device. Yeah, I that's, mean, that's an idea. I don't know of anything that exists like that. But I think you and I are in business now. Yeah, <laughs> we'll speak after the podcast. We're, we're going to talk about after this out of the podcast. <laughs> but but you mentioned robotics and and um, one of the one of the most failed investment decisions I ever made was 10 years ago, I had an opportunity to, uh, to invest in a company called intuitive surgical. Mm -hmm. um, when they were around, so like a hundred bucks or so. And I thought they were disgustingly overvalued. And I don't, I don't know what I, I don't know what their share price is now, but it's higher than that. And uh, you know where I'm going with this, but they created a, yeah. a, a, a robot called the, the Da Vinci which is aptly named um, after after Sir Leonardo. Um, I don't know if he's a knight or anything, but no, I uh, think he was Italian. <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> he was Italian, <laughs> but uh, he was an inventor. And, yeah, uh, this this robot is just ridiculous. Um, yeah, it's amazing. I actually got an opportunity to to watch a Da Vinci surgery. Let me put up this thing, and um, uh, for those that are on YouTube watching this on YouTube, um, you'll be able to see this thing. Um, there it is. This is a, uh, can you see this? I can. Yeah. This is a, this is the Da Vinci robot uh, with a dot. The doctor is the, is the guy sitting there looking into a screen and he has basically uh, a joy, two joysticks. And those things that are uh, that that thing that's flat is a patient, and those those arms that are sticking out there that look like an octopus are the 
I don't know. Is there a technical name for those things? They're just surgical arms. End effectors, I think. Um, well, end effectors at the tip of the surgical arm. Um, yeah. So uh, those are the things doing the surgery, and the doctor is controlling them with the joysticks that he's holding. And these things are unbelievably accurate. Yeah, and, they're amazing. And maybe you can kind of go through, uh, you know, specifically like how this thing works. Uh, because this is your this is your area, and, and as you do that, I'll see if I can find more pictures. Sure. Yeah, um, a lot of these Da Vinci systems typically have four robotic arms. One is going to be a 3D endoscopic camera, and then the three others are instruments. Uh, the latest one, I think, is called the uh, XI, uh, but they all operate fundamentally the same way. Uh, this one seems to be, um, see, they're all going through a single access port. Typically, or historically, they've gone into through uh, four different access points in the patient's abdomen. And the, um, the doctor can only control two at a time. But basically, he has access to, let's say, three instruments and one camera. And by he can switch which of the two he controls with either his left or right hand. So he could decide to move the camera in, out, left, right, to, to visualize whatever he's doing. And then with the other two hands, he can, for example, uh, manipulate two graspers and do like uh, sutures or have like an electrocautery um, scissors on one hand and another grasper on the other or a hook. So, and it's amazing. Like with the third one, he can like um, grab tissue, pinch it, pull it away, and then deactivate that arm. And it's going to hold it in that exact position so he can do other things. So basically, it's endoscopic surgery, except the, the user has a lot more control over the end effectors than a doctor would when he's doing endoscopic surgery. So this is, this is a picture of... Uh, the inside of this is what the doctor would be looking at through that yep. screen. Uh, and this is the pinchers doing sutures. Yep. This is, yeah. this is how fine a control that they have. You can do sutures with them. Oh, it's amazing. I mean, yeah, here you see the left end effectors holding the needle and the right one is maybe holding the tissue or something. I mean, they can like peel a grape. And also, this is an interesting shot because it, it kind of alludes to the stereoscopic vision that the doctor's seeing. So it's not like he's watching it in TV. He's ha he has his head in this thing, and he's seeing it in 3D. So he has depth perception. And unlike with like a you know conventional surgery or something, this camera is magnified 50x or something. So it's like he's doing it inside your abdomen under a microscope. So... Yeah. He's got better visualization and better uh, fine motor control. So if, like, if your hand moves um, an inch as you're tying a knot, the end effector might only move a quarter of an inch. So any uh, mistakes that you make are, are, are minimized because you're exaggerating your movements. Yeah. Uh, the next picture might be a little bit gross to people that have problems with like seeing something. So just... If you don't want to see it, it's only going to be up for about five or ten seconds. But um, and it's not that bad. 
but this is the view and it's the doctor sitting in there and this is the the device inside uh i guess there this is this the end product of sutures um but yeah this thing is this thing is really cool yeah i, I mean the um, and this is it uh peeling an apple so this is the kind of fine control it has you said it was uh it can no, suture that's a grape. grape. Yeah. This is the grape. Yeah, I mean these things are tiny. Uh and, and amazingly precise. This is appealing a grape. Yeah. yeah. But what's interesting is that they um <laughs> look at that. That's crazy. That's just and insane. What's funny is the doctor's not even in the in the OR. So he has to be, you know, on site. Typically it's in a room uh either in or, or next to the OR, but he, he's not even sterile or scrubbed in. Yep. So he's communicating with sterile, um, uh, you know, doctors in the OR who are assisting, uh, in the, on the patient side, but he's, you know, doing his thing on, in another side. And, and, uh, you know, where I, uh, was able to witness the, you know, the surgeries that was in celebration in, in, uh, central Florida, they have two OR set up with two Da Vinci robots. So the doctor basically goes between, you know, robot A and robot B back and forth while they're, uh, you know, preparing and closing patients. So he's able to do like double the, the amount of cases that he would normally do. And I mean, I think typical, uh, to, to tr traditional surgeries, but it's just very interesting that he doesn't have to, you know, scrub in. And then, um, you know, you have a view of what the doctor is seeing through like a, you know, regular 2D monitor. And I mean, it's just amazing watching them specifically suturing because they'll just tie a knot and it's done. You know, if you blink, you missed it. The speed and the accuracy is, is amazing. But it is basically just a giant remote controlled joystick thing. It's not like Rosie the robot is now an MD. <laughs> from uh from the Jetsons. No. Yeah, the Jetsons and, <laughs> I think we're dating ourselves. Um, and yeah. she's uh making uh decisions about what tissue to cut and whatnot. You know, it's still very much a human Yeah, it's basically it is a it's human control. People, you know, I've talked to um I've actually talked to patients who have been afraid of this. They, um, they've told me that they had needed surgery and the doctor told them that it's a Da Vinci surgery and they, they didn't call it that they called it the robot oh, and uh, they were afraid of the robot. And I, I asked them, is it the Da Vinci robot? And they said, yeah, it sounded like the Italian guy. It sounded like the guy, the Italian guy. And I, I said, you know, do you know anything about this robot? And they said, well, it just sounded scary because the doctor wasn't there. And I said, you, it, it, it's, it's not, it's not a role. It's not an AI. You know, it's not, the robot's not making the decisions. It's right. basically the extension. It's the, the extended hands of the doctor. The doctor is basically the doctor is the, the robot is the doctor. It's mm -hmm. just the doctor is doing it from a distance and it's, uh, it's almost better because there's, it's less invasive. Um, mm -hmm. it, it sort of made them feel a little bit better about it, but I think, I think they saw it and I think it freaked them out.
because when you see it and you saw the pictures of it, yeah, it, it looks frightening. It looks like, uh, I mean, it looks like something from the future, like an alien. Well, what's kind of uh, like mind blowing is that, yeah, it's very much a machine on the outside and any one of the motors that actuate any of the axes have more than enough force to, you know, really cause harm. And, um, one thing that's really amazing, like from an engineering perspective is where the, um, where the tools go in through the skin, there's like a little metal tube called the cannula, which is basically, you know, the, like a metal port that goes through your skin. So the, the tool can pivot any which way around the hole on your skin, but it, it can't translate. Cause if it did, it would kind of like pull on the skin and, and, and try to tear the skin. So the robotic arm can go in and out of that hole or it can pivot, but the, the center of rotation has to always be through the center of that hole on the surface of your skin. And Da Vinci calls that a virtual center. And like the software is always keeping track of the position of every joint on that robot above you and calculating a lot of trigonometry in real time to compute the way every motor has to move so that it never violates that virtual center. So when the doctor says, I want this end effector to move up, all he does is pull up on his joystick. But what that does is cause maybe four different motors to move in very strange ways to cause, you know, the tip of that arm to go up, even though the back of the, you know, robot arm might be moving down. So, I mean, it's called inverse kinematics for anybody who did any mechanical, like mechatronics classes, but it's hard. <laughs> There's a lot of smart people that uh, got a lot further in school than I did that figured out all of those calculations. And the fact that it does it reliably and repeatedly with zero failures every time. Well, let me, th let me I mean, ask, and you said they went further in school. How, well, to be the engineer level that you did, you went to what? You went to a master's level, PhD oh, level? Your bachelor's yeah. level. I have a bachelor's in mechanical engineering. Okay. And mechanical engineering covers anything mechanical. I, I mean, what I really liked about that major is you can go into automotive or consumer products. You can be working on, um, you know, industrial things like uh, impact drivers, uh, consumer products, uh -huh. medical devices, refrigerators, vending machines. So it's, it's pretty broad. I never specialized in school on, on medical. It's something that I just kind of got into, uh, you know, through my career choices. Okay. And, uh, th this, this machine, what, um, do you, do you have any insight into like how long it took to develop this thing or like what goes into kind of putting this thing together? Cause this mm. thing is, this thing is huge. Like it's the parts in this, there's two separate units from what I can tell. Yeah. Yeah. There's the, um, the surgical unit, which is the part that's sterile in the OR that's actually doing the surgery. And then there's the, uh, like 
I'm not sure what they call it, the, con the basically the control unit that the doctor operates with. Each one is the size of like a refrigerator, basically. Yeah. And they're massive. They've got wheels and and um and they're also massively expensive. I think like a million dollars a set or something. Yeah, but the the amount of surgeries you can do with this makes up for the cost that the for the hospital. Yeah. So it's it's for the hospital, it's worth the investment. Uh, and for intuitive surgical, it's worth the cost of investing in creating it because the, the R&D for this is probably uh, astronomical. But if you can sell it for a million dollars, um, you can make back the R&D on it too. Mm -hmm. so, so let's be futurists here. Um, this is now current. What is the future then of, of medical devices when it comes to um, surgery or, you know, what's, what's, the, what's the coolest future medical device that you can think of that's currently in development that you know of? Well, currently, I know Da Vinci's working on a single port robot, which basically they're taking all of those four instruments that used to go through four separate uh, holes in your abdomen. And they're just making one hole. And so everything has to be smaller and miniaturized. It has to go all through the same axis. And then when they come out the other end of the shaft, the end effectors have to be able to like kind of like bend out and back in. Uh, so that is beneficial for the patient because there's less um, access points, fewer scars for cosmetic reasons, etc. So single port robotic surgery is like on the immediate horizon. Uh, you know, beyond that, honestly, I can't speculate. I mean, we start getting into like sci-fi, I think. I, I'm not sure. What about like, uh, what about, um, you said you're not in the pharmaceutical end, but, you know, bio, bio, biomedical engineering could be involved in the capsulation of pharmaceuticals right would that be part of what you do so like would there be would there be something like the the delivery system of pharmaceuticals for instance the ability uh, to inject pharmaceuticals in a way that you wouldn't need a needle that's interesting um i don't know i think i think there are pills that you can take that have basically motors, sensors, electronics, etc. that dispense drugs as they pass through your GI at specific dosages, intervals, etc. Um, I, I was working on a project that uh, did the opposite. It, it took a sample of uh, fluid from your GI tract. I don't want to get more into it because I'm not sure how much of it is um, um, covered by an NDA or you know public knowledge. Right. But I know that there are um, there are products that infuse drugs in a me mechanical fashion as you as you take them. There's also pills that you take that have cameras. Uh, actually, one's called the PillCam, but I think it's Gibbon Imaging. And it will basically 
take snapshots of your GI tract as it passes through you. And I think it transmits them to like a um, radio device that you have to wear on your waist or something. I'm not sure how the um, images are, are transmitted. But I mean, just the idea that it has a battery, electronics, two cameras, and lighting for each camera is just amazing that we can miniaturize that. And a transmitter. Yes. That can that can transmit through flesh, right? Yeah. That's yeah, pretty cool. What about nano stuff, nanotechnology that can get to a joint and repair? And is that too sci-fi? It's I, I don't have any experience with anything like that, but yeah, it sounds too sci-fi. Um I mean, I've I've worked on some small catheters, like neurocatheters, um, you know, implants that go track into the brain. And I mean, it things start getting very hard when y you get that small. So I I mean, we I, now granted this is with like conventional processing of medical devices. I. I think when you're referring to like nano, I think you mean like types of process that makes um, like uh, computer chips. And I haven't had any experience with anything that 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 deals on on that scale. Okay. Well, what about all right? So I'm a Star Trek nerd, and one of the coolest things I'm a, I'm a Star Trek nerd, and I'm afraid of needles. And one of the coolest things that I've ever seen was, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen Star Trek, but one of the coolest things they have is that hypo spray that they stick on your neck. It goes, and then it, and it has like, and it injects medicine. Needleless. Now you got to tell me there's a way to do that without a needle, to inject medication subcutaneously without a needle. Isn't there, isn't there anything like that for like diabetics or it's a needle. There's yeah. always very small needle. As far as I know, it's still a needle. The needle's tiny. It's like, I'm holding up, uh, my fingers, maybe like a quarter well, of an inch, but it's still a needle. And yeah. the, I don't know. I, I honestly, I don't know the technology that they made up for Star Trek. I, I honestly don't know, but there is, there is some book somewhere because star trek is one of these things where like there's a site there's a quote-unquote scientific explanation for everything mm -hmm. right? it's, it's science fiction like you know uh dilithium doesn't exist right but that's what powers the um that that's what powers the the uh engines so the dilithium crystals create a matter antimatter explosion which is contained inside the engine which powers the warp engine. Clearly it's science fiction, but you know, matter and antimatter do exist. Um, lithium exists, dilithium does not exist, but anti matter and antimatter do exist. And if you, if you, if you could create them together and put them together, you would get a massive explosion because they annihilate each other. And if you could control that explosion, you could create a, disgusting amount of energy and if you could harness that energy you could create enough energy to do stuff 
Now, could you create enough energy to create a warp bubble? I, I'm not a physicist and I don't know, <laughs> yeah. but you know what I mean? Like, so you take a little bit of science that's real and you create the science fiction thing. I have no idea what the hypo spray is, but I'm sure well, there's a book that creates that. And so what I'm asking is because you have that knowledge is, is that even something that can be done to subcutaneously put something in your body without a needle like you have to i obviously you have to puncture the skin but can you puncture the skin without i, I think you're, you're i'd approach it differently like you're going about it in a in a more direct fashion like i i don't want a needle i don't want to feel the pain i don't want to see it you know let's remember the the first rule of anesthesiology is what you don't remember didn't hurt uh, that's actually a rule of a lot of things like psychiatry too. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think what you need is a big old traditional needle and then just a spray over your face. Like what, what just happened? <laughs> so that sounds like the men in black kind of thing where you just yeah, hold exactly. up the thing in front of them and go, just look into this light and, you'll, boom, right. and, and as you do that, you just stick in it like a, uh, a, a 16 gauge needle into them right. and you know, yeah. Okay. You know, what's funny is like sci-fi, I think, inspires a lot of technology. Oh, absolutely it does. You know, in the 80s, uh, the next generation had touchpads. Yeah. They, they were walking around with, they were walking around with like iPhones. And and now we have iPhones. I mean, they weren't iPhones, but they were iPhones. They were little. I, I remember being very excited about calculator watches. In oh, the yeah as a kid, like, oh, yeah. this is crazy. And watching like Dixie Tracy reruns and he's talking into his watch, like that's come on. Yeah. And yeah. I'm a little late to the game. I just got my first Apple watch like for Christmas and I've received phone calls on my wrist. Yeah. And I've had conversations with people and I hang up and I just kind of like take a pause and like, okay, I don't have a flying car yet, but no, it's coming. The future is here. It's coming. It's coming. And, 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 I'm, and I'm glad you mentioned cars because <laughs> I want to know where my flying car is. You know, in, in 1989, Back to the Future 2 came out. And they predicted Miami having a baseball team, which actually yeah. came true. And winning um, the World Series. And winning the World Series, which actually happened twice. Um, I think their, their nickname was the Gators. The Gators, which, yeah. Which they got wrong, but okay, it was an animal. They are named after an animal. Yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> <and> mammal. <laughs> a mammal. Yeah. No, no, marlins are not mammals. I'm thinking dolphins. They're not. No, the dolphins are mammals. That's dolphins. right. Marlins, right. Um, so yeah, so they predicted that correctly, but um, self-tying shoes. I don't think they got that right. Um, and they didn't get my damn flying car. No. But. The car was powered by um, combustion, uh, by, by, what was it powered by? It was powered by. Uh, well, not, or it was uh, a little Mr. Fusion. It was fusion, right? The fusion of. Uh, yeah, I don't know what the, uh, your, your run of the mill future car was powered by. It was powered but, by a fusion of garbage, right? Yeah. You just so put you, garbage in any, there. Any matter in it, I think organic, and it would just create fusion and make energy. No, uh, the closest thing you can have, I think, is a self-driving car soon. 
Well, we've got sort of that, right? Sort of like the, so my B, my BMW is sort of drives itself. I, I still have to have my hands on the wheel, but the, um, the cruise control, the dynamic cruise control keeps the speed, uh, does my speed all the way to zero. And I've tested yeah. this, um, when I've come up to red lights, I've gone from highway speeds all the way down to zero, which is just ridiculous. Um, it's frightening. That's assuming there's somebody in front of you who's well, stopped. Well, of course. Um, yeah. You know, if there's no one in front of me, it just keeps going. <laughs> yeah. So there has to be someone in front of me, which is, it's absolutely frightening the first time I tried it because um, it doesn't do it slowly unless the person in front of you is slow, is slowing down. Mm -hmm. So if someone in front of you is stopped and you're going at a certain speed, it doesn't pick up on that zero speed until you get close to them. And then it, it hits the brakes like you, like you just figured it out. And mm -hmm. then it slows down to zero. Um, Tesla has an auto drive, has an autopilot. Yeah. And I know that you are a car guy. Uh, I am not a car guy. You are a car guy and you are a Tesla fan. So yeah. uh, maybe you can explain to me uh, the Tesla autopilot system. Well, uh, yeah, I have a Model 3 and I didn't purchase the autopilot when I bought the car. But uh, a couple of times I got just an over the air, like free autopilot trial period for like a month. So my car had the autopilot for a month. And I had, I, I had an opportunity to experience that. And it is amazing. Um, you know, so BMW is using a radar mounted to the front of the car to just kind of like ping objects in front of it. It sends out a radio wave and then it bounces back and it kind of times how long it took to, to, to come back and figures out the distance to whatever it is that may or may not have bounced the radio wave back. So it's like a very, you know, primitive I don't want to say primitive. It means it's a Doppler. It's it's like the weather. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Teslas do still have a radar in the front of them, but they're trying to get most of the information from just regular cameras. And the really hard part about that is like the cameras have to interpret images and decide. Oh, this is a garbage bag or this is a boulder, this is a cyclist, or it's um, a cone, a and make like AI decisions about what things are and how things are happening around them. So that's the part that's really amazing. Um, you know, right at the... Um, so the wait, you're telling, me that, you're telling me that Tesla's autopilot is doing image recognition? Oh, hell yeah. Okay, because, okay, so now, all right, I did not know that, all right, and that worries me, because I went to an AI image recognition um, when I was, when I was doing my, my tech company thing, I went to a number of AI mm -hmm. image recognition uh, talks, and my understanding of image recognition uh, technology as it stands today is that it's not that great, like, it, it has a hard time distinguishing between say like a banana and a snake, <laughs> you know what I mean? 
or, or like a banana and a hot dog or a hot dog and a snake because they're similar yeah. and that you could feed it a thousand images of a hot dog, but it's like cats and dogs, for example. They both have eyes, nose, whiskers, fur. Right. Ear. Right. So if you and that's fine if you're just feeding a static image like on a computer screen and you know what I mean, and you're not and you're sitting at your computer. But if you're driving a car, yeah, and you want to know the difference between a boulder and say a beach ball that mm -hmm. came across the road, that could be a deadly difference. Absolutely. And I think where they're going with this is you have to know the difference between, like I said, like a plastic bag floating along, which you do as a, as a driver, and um, a person changing a tire on the side of the road. You have to hit one of them. And you make a decision which one you're going to hit. So ultimately, I think that the, the goal is to have the car under have the same understanding that we do as people and make the right decision. But right now it's not there. First of all, right now, when you, when you get, um, there's two levels of autopilot, there's like regular autopilot where it basically does what your BMW does. It stays within its lane based on like visual cues of where the lane is or the edge of the road, which it does very well. And it keeps a certain distance from the car in front of you, speeds up, slows down, which it also does very well. Then there's enhanced autopilot where um, right now, I believe the car will change lanes on the highway to, for example, overtake a slower vehicle. It'll pass it on the left. Um, it'll get off the highway uh, on your chosen off-ramp and if you have navigation on. Once you get to the end of the off-ramp, it's up to you to slow down and stop. Okay. And I think in the near future, they're starting to recognize stop signs and traffic lights and ultimately will be um, responding to them accordingly. Um, I think Elon Musk has announced that he wants like self-driving to work like in, in the city. So basically you say, you know, like, go to grandma's house and it just navigates completely autonomously to grandma's house. You still have to keep your hands on the wheel for liability legal reasons i mean people have really taken advantage i think of the autopilot and have paid for it but that's like the immediate future uh, having experienced it myself it's slightly terrifying slightly yeah and i think if you have any common sense or technical knowledge like yeah, there's been people that like engage the autopilot and like jump into the back seat and just do ridiculous things like that no way like you well, it allows you to be less alert but you still absolutely have to be alert and ready to take control at any moment what you're describing when you talk about the difference between a uh, plastic bag and a human on the side of the road is sort of like the turing test which is you know the ability for a computer to make the same decisions as a human to the point where humans don't know whether or not they're dealing with a human or a computer, basically to make a computer is making the decision that a human would. Right. And so far there is no computer that we know of. And Google's got the closest when they, um, when they created that chat bot mm -hmm. uh, that started 
talking like to make a hairdresser appointment. Yeah, I heard about that. Um, that was the closest thing, um, but it still it didn't really work. Like when you started really talking to it, you kind of knew what it was. Yeah. Um, there's a there's a really good Black Mirror episode. I don't know if you've seen it, where um, this woman loses her husband. And then she's given an app that talks to her like the husband did because the app scraped his entire social media <laughs> and then basically learned how he talks. And then she talks to him through a chat bot that basically talks to her exactly like he would talk to her and she can't tell the difference. And then that company that created this chat bot creates a life-size replica of him with an AI that basically replicates him and his voice and the way he would talk. Um, and it's, ba it's basically just him because they scraped his entire social media. Like that, that's the kind of AI touring yeah. test passing kind of thing. And when you're talking about recognizing those things, that's the kind of, well, that's the first thing I think of. And to me, if, if he can create a Tesla that does that, he's, he's sitting on, a algorithm that's bigger than a car. Well, uh, I mean, I don't think it's that advanced. I mean, you know, the task of driving is relatively straightforward, like compared to having a conversation or walking or playing tennis. You know, it's basically throttle, gas, steering wheel, right? And right. then, of course, the recognition have, part. That's that's yeah if he can pull that recognition part i mean he's sitting on something that's he's got to pull that out of the car and like that's just the perception part of it you know like i i i i've seen enough bags floating around that i know what a bag floating around looks like and how it behaves so i can make that call and that's all machine learning like the uh the, what's interesting about tesla is that they um, you know, the computer's like a neural network, which is a computer that's modeled uh, similar to a human brain. There's all these like neuro nodes and they make decisions the same way that our understanding of, of the brain is, but it requires you to train it. Right. So basically they have to um, feed the, the computer model, lots of images, for example, of uh, traffic cones and say, Hey, these are a bunch of traffic cones. So they're from all different angles, different lighting conditions, different um, perspectives, different traffic cones, some dirty, some tall, some short, et cetera, yellow, orange, green, whatever. And after a while, the computer, once you compile this and, and, and sort of burn that onto the computer software, it can make out traffic cones that it's never seen before. So you may have trained it with 5,000 images of traffic cones and you show it a brand new image that's not quite like any of them, but similar enough. And it says, yeah, that looks like a traffic cone. I know what a traffic cone looks like. So they're using that image data from all the cars they've ever sold that are on the street, which are constantly uploading data, by the way, through their like SIM cards to Tesla and just gathering real time, real world image data and processing it. In fact, they have algorithms that 
So instead of then a human on the other side in Tesla headquarters saying, yep, that's a cone. Yep, that's a motorcycle. That's a cyclist. That's a lane. That's not a lane. They can basically see how the driver reacted, for example, to, to lane markers. So if you're driving in the rain, visibility is poor. There's some kind of clearly marked lanes and some not so clearly marked lanes. Tesla knows, well, this driver decided that these were the right lane markers based on where he's driving. Therefore, this is what a lane looks like in this scenario. So they, they've got so many clever ways of using the drivers and their cars as like a you know computer lab to train the machines and the software for the, the new versions of the software. So Which it's almost like a software social network. At, yeah. At and a lot of this happens in the in the background. Uh, in other words, like it's it's just gathering data. And then when they get enough data and enough confidence, then they'll make a build and push it out to the masses. But you know, they might start looking at, you know, what what do dogs look like before they ever code it into the car to react to dogs, for example. But it, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, the the hardware too that they have on the cars is um, right now they have like hardware version 3.0, which is a Tesla designed, uh, you know, computer chip. Like they, they design the, the whole architecture to be optimized for image recognition and for the number of channels they have, I think they have like 12 cameras or something. So this thing is, is built from the ground up to do machine vision, AI, Etc. So it's it's completely optimized for this kind of thing, and and the amount of it's so good at this specific kind of task that they can. I don't. Know, I think they process like all twelve cameras at like sixty frames per second or something. It's it's amazing. This are really cool. Like so, there's a lot of electric vehicles coming out now. Like BMW has one, Mercedes has one, Porsche has one, which to me is just mind blowing. I had. Um, I think you told me yesterday Ferrari has one. Yeah, which I believe so. is which to me is even more mind blowing than Porsche. Um, so what is what is what is the difference, like in in your opinion, between those guys and Tesla, uh, as far as the electronic component of it? Like, what does does Tesla have some kind of electronic uh, the battery difference between them? Because they're all lithium batteries, right? Chassis manufacturers, they're just starting out. BMW knows how to put together sheet metal better than probably anyone else in the world to make beautiful, sturdy, amazing car bodies. Um, but yeah, as far as the drivetrain and the electronics, I'm not sure. I'm not... Uh, I mean, fundamentally, they're all using, um, you know, lithium battery packs, um, AC induction motors. I mean, it's not that, well, I mean, I don't think like to the core, there's that many technological differences between them. What I just don't understand, I think Tesla's genius was just giving them power. I mean, 
you can buy a Nissan Leaf that does zero to 60 in whenever, I don't know <laughs> if it ever gets to 60 or like the cheapest, slowest Tesla Model 3 that will blow the doors off of almost anything else on the street in terms of just acceleration. What I mean, Ferrari? I, I think most Ferraris are faster than the slowest Teslas, but in terms of like uh, quarter mile, I think the Tesla Model S P100D is the fastest production car in the quarter mile. I think Dodge has like a uh, like a charger something. Like basically, it comes with like drag tires in the front, and the passenger seat is optional. Has a transmission brake and like. 900 horsepower or something and, and that might be a little bit faster than a tesla model s p100d with four seats air conditioning like it's a four-door family car so what four makes it so family. fast what, what makes it what do they do that makes it so fast i mean ultimately the amount of power that it can generate but uh you know most Teslas have two motors one in the front one in the back they're independent but the way that the electric motor delivers the the torque is just unlike any gas engine. Actually, one of the things like when I bought my Tesla that really impressed me is when you first of all, anyone who drives it, when you press the accelerator, the car responds immediately. Now, you're you're probably listening to this thinking, so does my car. As soon as I press the accelerator, it's off. What is hard to understand is like, not really. When you press the throttle on a gas car, um, the throttle valve, which is like a little butterfly valve that lets air into the engine opens. And then air has to fill the intake manifold and then go into the cylinders. Whenever the next cylinder goes down in its intake phase, an intake valve opens, the air goes in, and then it sprays in a proportionate amount of fuel. And then you have a combustion event and that pushes on the piston and that makes torque. I mean, the best tuned engines in the world are very responsive and do this in like in one or two engine cycles. But even that takes some amount of time. Like we're talking maybe, depends on the engine's RPM, but let's say milliseconds, right? It's way less than that with an electric car. And it, it's something that you feel. And then, um, but as far as like the, the, the another interesting thing is in, in terms of grip, I mean, I've driven like high horsepower cars. Like you have to let off the clutch a certain way to get the car to grip, but not, uh, you know, peel out and do a burnout. But with uh, the Tesla, the, 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 the torque is delivered so smoothly to the tires because you're not going like bang, 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 bang. Every time there's a combustion event, you know, the torque in the gas car, it feels smooth, but it's, it's interrupted, really. It's every time there's an ignition event, the engine makes torque, and then it doesn't, and then the next cylinder ignites, and it makes torque, and then it doesn't. So on average... You know, it feels okay, but uh, I think that the 
the smoothness of an electric motor just doesn't disrupt the grip of the tires. So, I mean, the grip is just unreal. I mean, the, a, a friend of mine calls it, it takes off like a cat with sneakers. <laughs> okay. It's unreal. I mean, I'm sitting here trying to find words to describe it, but. So would a, would a hybrid car do it better then? Because you get uh, the electric part of it that responds immediately and the gas part that gives it more, more torque. Um, yeah, you definitely would feel the immediate response due to the electric motor, but what I don't get about, I mean, I get it. The, the hard part about an electric car is the batteries. Batteries are big, heavy, expensive, and they don't hold a lot of energy. I mean, you get a 15-gallon gas tank, and it's two pieces of sheet metal stamped together and welded, and it costs, I don't know, six bucks to make or something, who knows, and it holds more energy than your Tesla lithium-ion battery does by like a factor of four or five or something. So hybrids try to take advantage of good old fossil ener fuel energy and deliver it in a more efficient way. But my problem right now with hybrids is, you know, I'm a very much a car guy. I love cars. I have always worked on them. I hate cars. I've fixed just about everything that can go wrong with a car. And it's typically like um, anything that's rubber or plastic and gets hot. So like radiator hoses, belts, this, that. So a hybrid has all the complexity of a gas drivetrain and all the complexity of an electric drivetrain put together. So like in terms of like total complexity, they're the most complex, craziest cars available. And then you have a transmission that has input from a gas engine, info, input from an electric motor and outputs to the wheels versus with an electric car. I mean, if you've ever seen a golf cart axle, that's what a Tesla is. It's just one electric motor, one gear and the drive shaft. There's no gear changes or anything. There's no, you know, radiators to speak of. Yeah. I mean, the, there are radiators for the, the batteries, but they don't get to the temperatures that a, you know, a car engine does. So, I mean, there's like almost zero moving parts, zero, you know, the, the wear items are much less. So, I mean, I like hybrids, especially the, the plug-in hybrids, because that gives you the opportunity to just, um, is this it? Uh, that might be one cracked in half. There's one. That's the whole, which one, this one, the one on the, yeah, that too. So that, that kind of shows the transmission. There's, you see like two gears on the right. This right here. Yeah. Yeah. So this there's is a Tesla motor. That's what you're looking at. Or Tesla drivetrain. What did you call it? Yeah. That's the motor on the right. Those three tabs are the three electrical connections to the motor. And then the kind of like round things with the, the slits on them are that's the, the drivetrain. There's one big gear there, which is the output to the wheels. Yeah. And a small gear, which is the motor. If you look at an image of a, like a conventional transmission, I mean, there are more parts than you can think of. 
actually check out the image above that one right there. I think that might be a video. This one? Uh, no, the um, Tesla motor test bench above. It's like it has the tires on it. Above that, right there. No, sorry, down one. This one? Yes. So, uh, yeah, that's a YouTube video. And like they show this thing, like, you know, getting up to speed and turning the wheels. I this mean, is a Tesla motor? That's it? Yeah. So one half is the motor, the other half is the electronics that control the flow of current to the motor. Huh. Like, you know, like one can is the motor, the other can. Yeah. That's it. So that's the, the subframe, the motor, the transmission, and the suspension components that, that hold the wheels and the drive shaft. That's it, which is amazingly so, simple from a design perspective. So then doesn't the speed have to do with the fact that the, the, the whole of the car is really light? It doesn't have a lot to push. Uh, no, actually, they're very heavy because of the batteries. But the, but the battery itself can't possibly be so heavy that it is heavier than a an engine of a gas car. It, it is. It is? Yeah. Yeah, actually, the second image in that um, search shows that, yeah, there you go. The That's whole, the whole car, car is a battery. The I car see. Is a battery, yeah. You're sitting on top of the battery. Your feet are on top of the battery. Yeah. So it gets very hot then, doesn't it? Oh, no. There's um, cooling channels that run through all the cells in the battery. And so the temperature is very carefully uh, monitored and managed by the car. It can, it's actually pretty amazing. They, they can, um take heat out of the battery and it comes out through like a radiator or something because like the you know the warmer water that flows through the batteries and goes through a radiator and fan blows that out or they can use that heat from the batteries to heat the cabin to keep you warm in the winter and not have to run a heater which is really efficient or they can uh, run the the coolant through the ac coils and actually cool the battery with the ac unit I mean, they can basically pump heat from the battery to the electronics, to the cabin, to the radiators, to the AC, any which way. That's kind of like the biggest maintenance item that worries me is, you know, all the rubber hoses that connect the coolant. But again, it's not getting to 220 degrees Fahrenheit like a normal gas engine would. So hopefully the longevity of those components is is much better okay i see and you know that you've heard like these batteries are made of like these laptop cells uh actually hold on a second so a hybrid would not have a battery this large it would no. be a hybrid much. battery would be smaller than this yeah much smaller yeah, actually, here's here's one of the like the types of cells that make up like a Model S battery, and, and they just literally have thousands of these in the bottom. There you go, of the car. Oh, so it's yeah. basically a lithium-ion battery, just put yeah. together. 
just put together to make uh, I don't know 440 volts and up to 100 watt uh, kilowatt hours of energy. I see. Yeah. All right. They, um, yeah, another thing with hybrids is like a lot of the, I love the work that all the manufacturers are doing with hybrids, but a lot of times they'll get a, a car that's designed to be a gas car and add the hybrid systems to it. So all the compromises that they had to make to fit the gas engine, the drive shaft, the gas tank, et cetera, they have to live with, with the electric system. With the Tesla and cars like the Nissan Leaf, the BMW i3 and i8, they've started from the ground up as an electric car, or in the case of the i8 hybrid. And they, um, for example, the Tesla doesn't have a, you know, most cars have like a bump that goes kind of like down the middle of the car, like between the back seats. With the Tesla, the floor is completely flat because there's no need to run a drive shaft from the front of the car to the back, nor is there an exhaust pipe that goes from the front of the car to the back. Um, the hood is a lot lower because there's no engine to cover. So your, your visibility is a little bit better. Uh, so from a design perspective, it's really refreshing when somebody takes a fresh approach to you know, designing a car from the ground up as an electric car because it, it changes the kind of choices you can make. A lot of hybrid cars have the battery, for example, in the trunk. Like I know the Honda Civic hybrid, which, so, okay, it's a little bit higher than you would like. So the center of gravity is higher. The car doesn't handle better. The Tesla having the battery like way at the bottom, the center of gravity is lower than a Corvette. I mean, it's still heavier and it, granted, a vet is a vet. But the performance is amazing because they were able to make those design decisions to put the battery that low. You can't put the battery underneath a Honda Civic. There's just no place for it. Nobody thought of it. So you're stuck with, well, I guess we'll put it in the trunk. But it's also not as big, so you don't need to you don't need to put it underneath the car, right? Well, you don't need to. And then again, you, you can't make it as big. Mm, okay. Because they would fill up the whole trunk if you did. And then the balance of the car is thrown off. So then what's what's the future of these cars then? Because the hybrid seems to be where these cars are going, uh, kind of the in-between. All electric, uh, you know, all electric has the problem of balancing uh, power with mileage right because the, the issue is you can't give the car enough power to move it fast enough but also give it enough distance right well, you know, it's, it's, uh, the bigger you make the battery the more range you get the more power you could get out of it but, but it also then becomes a problem of i think it's range and cost Right. The bigger the battery, the more it's going to cost, the yeah. hotter it gets, the more you have to cool it, the more um, the more it's going to cost to charge it, right? Well, the more I, energy it requires to charge. My, my Model 3 gets uh, a claimed 300 miles of range. I think it depends on how you drive, but let's say, let's say 280, right? So 
I can drive from Miami to Orlando without charging if I'm pacing myself and I've planned everything accordingly. Uh, more than likely, you'd want to stop and charge along the way. Uh, so as far as the future of electric cars, right now they're range limited. There's a gas station on every corner, practically, right? You get in your car, you want to go somewhere, you just go. You don't plan, you go. With an electric car, I mean, Tesla has an amazing network, but you still have to plan things out. Like, okay, so where are we going to charge? There's a charger at this rest stop, but not that one. So let's charge here. And then when we get to our destination, how much energy will we have? Are we going to drive around town? So, I mean, range anxiety is a real thing. As a commuter car, you charge at home. There's no issue. But if you take it on a road trip, you know, if you find it fun to plan these things, it's great. But it's different. So, uh, I mean, I have a friend of mine who's in the market for a car. He wants to get something greener. So they're looking at a hybrid. And I'm telling him, well, well why not a Tesla Model 3? It starts at like $38,000, which is in line with some of the cars that are hybrids that they're looking at. And he's thinking, well, I can't, I can't drive to Orlando without having to charge. And that, I think, is a big holdup for a lot of people. Also, when you do charge... When you fill up your gas tank, it takes, what, five minutes? Yeah. Maybe? yeah. To pump 15, 20 gallons of gas. To charge an electric battery, it'll take at least 20 minutes. I mean, chargers are getting faster and more powerful. But today, the holdup, I think, is the batteries. As, yeah. as the battery technology gets better, we need batteries that hold more energy in a given amount of space, volume, weight, and, and dollar amount and can put the energy in faster. Okay. So look, give me your, give me your best theory here. You're Elon Musk. You've got a stupid amount of money, which is true. He does have a stupid amount of money. I'm giving it to you. I'm giving you Elon Musk's stupid amount of money and I'm putting you in charge of Tesla. What do you do with it? Um, I fired Elon Musk. I put you in charge of Tesla. I, I put him in jail. Too many SEC violations. Yeah, right? <laughs> now I've put you in charge of Tesla. Uh, what do you do with it? I don't know. I think I'd acquire a couple of uh, decent car companies and just Who? expand the portfolio. Who? Whoever I could afford. Obviously not like Toyota or anything, but like, well, I, I got to tell you, Tesla's uh, Tesla's enterprise value is larger than GM right now. Well, there you go. Let's buy a GM. <laughs> I okay. mean, that might be a tough purchase I'm, for them. And what would you do with it? I don't know if they have that much cash. Uh, okay, I, 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 know, I know they uh, don't, but 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 what would you do with this car company that you would buy? You know, even my Model Three, it it's it looks cool, but kind of goofy i i think they they need to get a little bit more mainstream i think they need a proper suv i mean suvs are i mean amazingly popular in the u.s they i mean every car company has one i mean the model x i don't consider it an suv it's kind of like a weird egg-shaped weird thing like 
I'd I'd make an SUV that looks like an SUV, like it, it could go off road. I mean, that's the whole point of an SUV. You need a minivan, but you want something that looks like it might go off road. It can't, but it looks cool. So this is not an SUV to you? No. Because honestly, this looks a little bit like, I mean, it looks like an SUV to me. Well, you know what? You're right. You know, you're right. I take it back. You know what it looks like? It looks like a, um, it looks like a, um, a sedan with an extended back. Yeah. It's you're just right. kind of odd. Yeah. Like where are the wheel arches and it's not, it's not thick enough in the back. It's like it lost its booty. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of what it looks like. But you know what? I see these things all over the street. Yeah. Especially in Miami. Well, yeah, yeah, and it and it opens like a DeLorean. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting design choice. I think it's brilliant, like from a first or second model marketing perspective. But at some point, just just give me the electric minivan, the electric pickup truck, not not the cyber truck, like just yeah, a real truck. <laughs> You're not, so you're not you're not a you're not a Cybertruck fan. You know it's it's grown on me. Really, but so, so not just, not to the point that I drive one. This one. Oh um, God! Look at it. It's just. Yeah. No. But um, I'm sorry. No. <laughs> I don't. Here think we are. There, there's never been a Cybertruck or Tesla commercial aired anywhere or a billboard. I mean. Their marketing, I think, is brilliant. But yeah, at some point, you just got to make a an electric F one fifty and just sell billions of them. And, um, have, have you seen the 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 coffee maker meme of it? No, there's a coffee maker. It's like a like a Cuban like or Italian like a espresso maker. They like one of those cyber trucks. Oh, like this. <laughs> 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 that's that is sort of what it looks like <laughs> <Yeah>. gonna... <laughs> that's so awesome yeah that's that's yeah but again you know design wise the idea that it doesn't have like a like a body on frame construction it's you know it's a it's a unibody design i think it's a lot more efficient I, I kind of love the fact that it's not painted and that's thick stainless steel. Like you'll, you could own that for 20 years and it'll look exactly the same as it does now because the paint won't fade. Yeah. But is that what you want it to look like? <laughs> <laughs> that's the problem. That it'll look exactly that's, the same. That's exactly the problem is that it'll look exactly the same as it does now. <laughs> okay. So, all right. So you're in charge of, uh, you're in charge of Tesla. You buy, a company I'll, so I'll get I'll get GM I'll make the electric uh Silverado electric S the electric like half their lineup okay just electrified okay so that's 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 a start uh, a, a legitimate SUV okay all right yeah you know, I haven't been to a gas station in like 2 years um it's, you know, kind of awesome. Yeah, I mean, 
So for the commuter, yeah, it only takes you five minutes to pump gas. But that's five minutes every week or four days or however much you drive. But I take five seconds to plug in my car every single night, like I do my phone. And that's it. And it's always ready to go. So that's kind of a neat, you know, convenience. But and if then, you go to Orlando, where do you plug it in? In the hotel. Uh, we went for the food and wine festival a couple of years ago. And like most of the rest stops on the turnpike have Tesla superchargers. So we stopped at one of those, plugged in, uh, went to the restroom, got a coffee. And by the time we were ready to go, the car was ready to go too. So 20, 25 minute stop. And then same thing on the way back. A lot of you know destinations don't have chargers, which is, I mean, not unreasonable. I mean, it just doesn't make sense yet for hotels, franchises to have these things because the number of people who would use them is, is not high enough. But um, we did take a trip to, I think it was a Hyatt in Naples. I think most of them do have like a destination charger. So you get to the hotel, you plug in, and then you drive back. And, and that was pretty amazing. We also took a trip to Kennedy Space Center um, in Cape Canaveral. And they have chargers there. And that was great because, you know, we drove up, plugged in, charged, and drove back home. And a lot of the destination ones are, are free, or at least, a, you know, the facility pays for it. Hmm. All right. Well, uh, well, look, I, I've put you in charge of Tesla. So, um, you know, the, the next time you come on here, I'm going to expect a full, a full quarterly report. Um, we'll and, have that flying car ready for sure. Yeah. You're gonna you're gonna have to have that. You're gonna have to have a full quarterly report. Uh, your uh, uh, the economics of your purchase of GM, mm -hmm. and uh, and my flying car. <laughs> okay, and uh, promise me you're gonna come back and do this again because I don't even think we got to everything that I wanted. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think we just scratched the surface. And yeah, I don't even think we finished the Tesla discussion, but um, this was definitely a lot of fun. Um, we got to do this again. Yeah, glad to I, be here. I, I appreciate you coming on. Um, I think I think this might have been the longest one I've done so far. I think uh, you and I did uh, a podcast longer than I did with Maria. So. Oh, don't, don't tell her that. <laughs> I'm not going to tell her that. I'm going to let her listen and figure it out on her own. <laughs> All right, thanks, Alex. All right, Dimitri. Good night. <laughs>